So, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 2. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. God, we ask now that as we open up um, your word that you would speak. God, I pray that um, the Sermon on the Mount, God, these Beatitudes, these blessings would resonate with all of our hearts into what does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus. Spirit, come and work in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We have two people working the exact same job. Um, we'll just go something in maybe computer science. They're both um, some kind of programmers for some company. Um, they both work really hard at doing the best job possible. One guy is always making sure that he writes down every specific detail that his boss gives him. The other guy does the exact same thing. They're both nice and courteous. They don't steal out of the staff refrigerator. They make sure that on cold days they park furthest away to give ladies an opportunity to park closer to the door so to walk in the cold as much. And they're just every other month they switch between being employee of the month. Great hard workers. One guy, motivation stems from if I work really hard, if I'm really nice, if I don't steal from the staff refrigerator, maybe I'll get a raise, maybe I'll get a bonus, maybe I'll find my wife here. So I just have to make sure that I do my absolute best job, impeccable work, in order to be noticed and recognized by others. Another man's motivation attitude is saying, I have a witness. I live for Christ, and I want people to see this light in me. I want to be a preservative for the world. I want people to know that there's something different about me. I don't want to steal because stealing is wrong. I want to treat others more important than myself because Jesus did that for me. You see, if, if, we, if we took out the motivations for a second and we just looked at what they produced, who they were, what kind of employees they were, or maybe even students people who got good grades, who were nice to everyone else, who made sure that they were involved in as many extracurricular activities, and they're just known for being a good, stand-upright guy. One says, I want people to notice me, and I want to get ahead. One says, I want to share Jesus with others by the way I live. <coughs> if you take away the motivation, what do you have? You have very similar products being produced, but are they the same? You see, I bring up that, I guess, dichotomy because there's a question that I sometimes wrestle with that I've heard my entire life that I probably ask all of you and your youth leaders ask you. Questions like, have you been reading your Bible? Do you pray? Have you been coming to church? 
All questions where we could possibly answer yes, sometimes, not as much, no, not really, no, not at all. But the hard part about that question, it doesn't really help me get into what is the motivating factor of your life. What is pushing you to do that thing? So someone who might say, no, you know, Aaron, I don't read my Bible that much at all. Might say, you know, because it's just so hard to come to the Bible. I'm just wrestling with God in so many things. And when I come to the Bible, I'm just so convicted. And someone can, you know, say that. And I can tell they're wrestling with God. They're working some things out. That they're trying to understand God's love. And someone else can say, I read my Bible every single day. And I journal about it. And I'm praying all these different things. And you peel back maybe a few layers of the onion. And you get out some of these motivations. And it's just because... Well, I don't want to be nagged at by you guys, so I read my Bible. Well, because I've been told my whole life that reading your Bible is good. And the problem I, I really face with that, because as I know my life, there have been plenty of times where I've been reading the Bible daily, yet not walking with God. He's not close to me. I'm very distant and shut off. But guess what? When I was asking my leaders, I've been reading my Bible. Yep. He's doing good then. Stamp of approval. To the Beatitudes isn't really necessarily concerned about what you are doing. It's concerned about your heart, your attitudes. What do you think about? What is your natural disposition in life? And that's why these words, as I said last week, are so countercultural to any other philosophy or moral system or any other religion you'll ever come across in this life. Because Jesus is talking about attitudes, about morals, about things that naturally do not occur in someone who has not been reborn, who has not had a new life in himself, in Jesus. And so someone could possibly say, yeah, you know what? I think people are sinful. I'm sinful myself. Yet you question their motivation. And it's not about motivation to please God or to want to be closer to God. But it's maybe just a, a form of depravity, you know, depression or pessimism in life. And so my desire, as I even think about a lot of you who I have you for a few years or just one year or for a few months or maybe it's for a few weeks, what are some goals I'd like to see you when you kind of grow up and, you know, graduate high school, go out to your you know, colleges or careers or jobs, military, and you leave your parents' homes, what are some things I would like to make sure that I instill inside these high schoolers and middle schoolers on Wednesday nights? And it's not to say, I do a bunch of things for God. It's not for me to help you say, well, I went on this mission trip and that mission trip, and I've read through the Bible three times, and I helped in the worship band, but it's to have a submissive humility to God that says, I don't care what I do, I need to love Jesus more. And so we looked at the first four Beatitudes last week, and we mentioned something that's really important, that these blessings that we keep hearing that word, blessed are those, blessed are those, Jesus is more trying to say, congratulations. Congratulations to the people who these resonate with, that these attitudes at any moment spark like, yeah, what you're saying, I feel, I get that. That makes sense. 
Jesus is saying, congratulations. Because if, if these beatitudes, if these blessings make sense with your heart, Jesus is saying, you're on the right track. And that's a good thing. You know what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So we talked about blessed are the poor in spirit, those who realize that, hey, spiritual bankrupt, I got zero. Blessed are those who, who mourn, who say, my sin, the sin that I did earlier, I hate it. It disgusts me. It makes me sick. Blessed are the meek, that I would rather suffer than sin. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we don't want to fill up on ships, right? Well, let's move on a little bit um, and try to maybe tonight possibly finish looking at these Beatitudes. So kind of just picking back up, um, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. See, this is a very, very convicting point for me because I think sometime recently in my life I kind of struggled with this a little bit. But this is like the main point that Jesus is trying to say. And blessed are, congratulations to those were merciful. That if you think for a second, you have sinned more against God than any person has ever sinned against you. If you were to add up all of the sins that you've committed against God, that list, that amount of sins would be far more totaling than any sins that all the people have ever committed against you. So, you know, I, you might be talking to someone who's had a really rough life. And sure, I've met people in Chicago. And, you know, because sometimes I was sitting there at work and I'd be sitting at an empty parking lot just waiting for cars. And a homeless dude, like, oh, man, get a book, you know. And I would just ask, what do you want it for? Beer. Like, I appreciate the honesty. But I was like, what's your story, man? What's going on? Like, why are you like this? And it's just some huge story about mom and dad and brothers and I lived with my sister and she stole and blah 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 and then I had this and I was married and I have kids and my kids don't talk to me anymore and you look at the list of sins that people have committed against him and it is far far more large than any sins that people commit against me I mean yeah people might talk behind my back some might have stole over the cash in my college dorm room people might make fun of me but man some of these people I met on the streets of Chicago, yeah, they had, they had it a lot more rough. But guess what? Even in that case, every single person has sinned against God far more than any possible amount that people have sinned against us. Why is that important? You see, all these Beatitudes connect together. The person who realizes that they are spiritually bankrupt who realize that they need to mourn over their sin, that it's a meekness, a humility, that is true of Christ, that they need to hunger and thirst for righteousness, realizes that any mercy that they have been received needs to be imparted unto others. You see, later in the, in the same book in Matthew, he brings, Jesus brings up this story of the parable of the unforgiving servant, where this, um, this guy owed a like, kajillion dollars. That's literally what it's saying, like, like an unnumberable amount of money. And they, they, they take him, like, you owe us money, and we're going to take all your kids and your wife, and you can't do anything. And he gets on his knees and he begs, please forgive me, help me, please. And it says his master has mercy on him. 
and he forgives the debt. And then right after that, he goes to a guy who owes him a five spot compared to the kajillion dollars that he owed at one point, and he puts him in jail and demands that he pays him back. And when the other master found out that he did this, that you wicked servant, I forgave you a bajillion dollars and you can't forgive someone a five spot. So what Jesus is not saying, he's not saying if you don't have mercy on people, you won't have any mercy. You won't get any mercy. Rather this, the standard that you use to have mercy on others will be used against you. That, see, that's, that's a little convicting for me. Um, it was a few months ago, my wife, we moved into a house and it seemed like a nice, safe neighborhood. And I'll tell you something, I lived in Chicago for seven years and I never once had my car broken into. And even more than that, there's like a little like um, rule that we always kind of went by, never lock your door in Chicago. Do you know why? Because if they want something in your car, they're going to open the door and take it or they're going to break the window and take it. So leave it open, don't keep anything valuable in your car, but... Let them go. If they want to get in your car, just make it easy for them. Don't, you don't want to deal with a broken window, okay? So, typically, we don't lock our car doors that much. Especially when we're at home. It's just like, I don't keep anything valuable. You know, there's a few, like, receipts, some oil changes I can go through. Help yourself. So my wife happens to leave her purse in the car. And we kind of, like, realize, like, I can't find my wallet. Where is it? I'm like, do you leave in the car? I don't know. I'm like, you know, can we log my phone really quick? I'm like, we didn't go to Jack in the Box, didn't go to Fred Meyer, didn't spend $37 at the gas station. I was like, it got stolen. Now, I'll be honest, this was a very big struggle for me. I had to, like, really, like, at first I struggled with this. Just don't say anything. Just let go. Blah. But I'm filing a police report, and this guy's saying a few things, and then I was like, I'm sorry. Who leaves their wallet right on the front seat? And I just kind of like went off a little bit. Made her feel really bad. Like, and here's the thing, like I've told her like probably six or seven times before that, don't leave your purse in the car. I keep sitting in the car. Don't do that. It's not a good idea. I don't care about... And then guess what? It gets stolen. Told you so! Gosh! Fast forward a few months later, into the month of December. It's um, <laughs> funny telling this story. I leave my guitar in my car, and I can't find my guitar anywhere. And I'm convinced that my guitar is stolen. And, I, and whether it's stolen or misplaced, I was very irresponsible with it. I did not do what I keep telling her to do, and I can't find it, and I'm convinced that it's gone forever, and I'm the biggest fool, and my wife just looks at me and says, it's okay. Don't worry about it. <laughs> You're supposed to say, I told you. Like, you got mad at me when I did it. I mean, and, and I, I found my guitar. Um, I left it in a very random place. Um, and I still was so convicted that I did not respond well to my wife. I was not merciful at all. Yet when I did something just as dumb, she showed mercy. She didn't say, oh, how dare you get mad at me? And look what you did. You know, and I, I just think sometimes, like, we need to be merciful to stupid people. Do you know why? 
Because eventually we will all be that stupid person at one point. You know, every, I'm a good driver, but everyone else isn't, right? Yeah, I remember one time, um, you know, in Chicago, I just got my car. A lot of one-ways, not used to that from a small town. And I remember, like, going down Roosevelt, turning left on Harrison, and seeing, like, 30 taxis coming towards me. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. And I have people in the car. I'm like, I'm Gordon NASCAR. Brum, brum, brum. I was like, man, this almost killed all of us. I almost died. You know, then like, I would say like, maybe like a month later, I was in McDonald's parking lot, and this guy was backing up in a USPS truck, right? The mailman is backing up. Does he see me? Does he see me? Does he see me? Honk at my horn, and he stops and he gets out. Oh man, dude, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't even see you, man. Oh. That would have ruined both our days. I'm so sorry. Hey, man, I get it. We all do dumb things sometimes. See, that, that's the spirit of being merciful. To say, you know, I am weak and lowly. I have a zero. I need mercy. God has shown mercy to me. I, that now needs to be imparted to other people. You know, I think there's a few questions like, are we merciful to the wretched and to the homeless? Are we compassionate to those who have fallen away? Are we impatient or callous to those who have backslidden? When people struggle in different ways that we don't actually struggle, are we merciful? Do we say, it's okay, let's pray through this? You know, I don't understand every single sin that people commit. You know, there's some sins like, dude, I totally get that. I see how you struggle, I see why you struggle. But there's other sins where I'm just like, to be honest, my brain does not think that way. But am I merciful to those people? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The measure you use to have mercy on others is the measure that will be used to you. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Verse 8. Um, this is a very, this is, one of my favorite verses in the New Testament because this is probably one of the most helpful verses in helping me with fighting sexual sin. You see, sin never ever tells you that it's going to be a horrible thing, that if you do this sin, it's going to create destruction and it's going to be horrible and it's going to lead to misery and sorrow and depression and it's going to ruin your life. Sin has never ever promised that, right? Sin says, oh, this is going to be good. This will be fun. No one's going to know about it. It's between me and you. This is awesome, right? It's exciting. But what I find when I'm fighting my sin, when I'm fighting sexual sin, is I need to find better promises. I need to make sure that here's what sin is offering, but what is God offering? What does He say? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Is that promise of seeing God better than what's going to be on the screen or better than what I can do with my boyfriend or girlfriend. Blessed are the pure in heart. See, he's not just even talking about sexual sin, but this idea of purity is being untarnished, being un, like, not undivided at all. It's just simply my whole heart is on one thing. So I'm reminded of these verses in Psalm 24. It says, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord who may stand in his holy place? So, in essence, what he's saying is like he's asking the question, who can have fellowship with God? Who can have a relationship with him? 
the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. You see, a pure heart is united in purpose. It says, I'm not going to go mess around with these sins and this idol. I'm not going to chase just just career or just good grades or just being good at sports, but being pure in heart to say, Jesus is number one. Are you seeking the Lord? And so I was thinking about this idea of being pure in heart. There's a few questions that kind of came to mind of what does it really look like to be pure in heart? So question one, there's a few of them. How much sympathy do you have towards deception and wrongdoing? How much do you enjoy shady humor, no matter how funny it is? So that's something I think a lot of you probably should think about. How much do you enjoy shady humor? What do you pay consistent allegiance to? So if you think in your life, what is the one thing that you're always true to? Every time that one friend comes knocking or that one sin is tempting you or the one time you know, you're just constantly faced with a, um, a crossroads, who are you allegiance to? What do you want more than anything else? What and whom do you love? That, that game we kind of taught you guys, life, love, and why? Being pure in heart. To what extent are your actions and words accurate reflections of what is in your heart? See, we can really easily hide what our heart really is. There are plenty of times where I will be face to face with someone who I just downright do not like and guess what? Hey, what's up man? How you doing? How's such and such going? In my heart, I'm like, I hate this person. I don't want to be around this person at all. But there's other people around and guess what? I have to put on an act. I mean, when I'm with Connor, man, I tell you what. (laughs) Kidding. It's far from the truth. See, as a Christian, um, there's this verse I really like in 1 John 3, 2 that says, Our long and expected hope is that when Jesus appears, we will be made like him. That the hope of the Christian is that when Jesus finally comes and reveals himself, that we will be made like him that we will be in perfect righteousness, that we will no longer have sin, that we will be pure in heart, that we will not be undivided anymore, we will not be struggling with sexual sins, that we will actually be able to love the Lord perfectly. That's our hope, right, as Christians? Now here's the question. Is our hope consistent with our present struggle? Is our hope of becoming like Jesus, of becoming perfect, consistent with how I'm living my life today? Do I desire to be pure in heart? And I love that. I love love what he promises. For they shall see God. Jesus says it best. Can't serve two masters. Anyone who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. As Jesus is saying this, you can only serve one master, and that master needs to be me. 
To be pure in heart is to serve Jesus and no one else. It's not to serve Jesus and then my worldly desires, my fleshly desires. It's not to serve Jesus and my career. Not to serve Jesus and my future ambitions. It's to serve Jesus, to be unified in purpose. All right, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Quick question. Does anyone have, for they shall be called children of God? In their translations. Yeah? What what kind of version do you have? Huh? What are the acronyms? I can help you out. NLT? Okay. All right, we'll talk about that in a second and why it's wrong. Um, No, it's not your fault. You didn't write that. You didn't translate it. Blessed are the peacemakers. And so... Jesus is not saying, blessed are those who have individual peace. Not even those who have peace in their family, as like, you know, maybe as I would think for my own self, like, blessed are those who have peace in their marriage. It's those who actually go and make peace. You know, so as Christians, this attitude, this thing that Jesus is saying, like, this should resonate in your heart if you're really born of this kingdom. If you have been reborn through faith in Jesus, this needs to be your desire. To have unity through purity by love. That you want God's people to have a unity. To not be divided. I mean, I think there's a few people I know on top of my hand who I think are the most like best peacemakers I've ever seen. Do you know why? Because every single time a conversation gets heated or there's some division, they're always the person who is slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to act, and before they give their response, before their reaction, they say, you know what, I, I need to pray about this for a night. The people who say, you know, and the problems are, are happening, you know, gossip this, so-and-so is doing that, you know what, let's just make sure we understand there's two sides to each story. That we don't want them to be offended, we don't want them to be hurt. But to desire peace, Jesus is saying, to actually go and do it. They shall be called sons of God. You see, the reason why sons of God is so important compared to child of God is because child can just refer to the fact that I was born into a family and I'm a child, but son represents an inheritance. That this is supposed to be your family resemblance. That you are a son of God. If you think about the most perfect peacemaker there ever was, that was Jesus Christ himself. Do you know why? Because he brought peace between God and man. Because he separated the gap that there was. That we had sinned. We had walked away from God. We said, God, forget you. We're going to do our own thing. Jesus fills in that gap by taking our sin on the cross and says, now men and God can have peace again that can be reconciled. Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. And to be called sons of God, therefore, means that we need to resemble that. That when we see friends getting in little roughs, you know, we don't just say, oh, I'm going to pick a side. I think so-and-so is right and that person's lame. 
And I, I think for my own life, you know, do I do I greet people with a cold handshake or with a warm hug? Come on, brother, bring it in. These are attitudes that represent the person who has been born again, who has shifted worldviews. Their paradigm is completely different now. Yes, I want peace. I want unity. I don't want Christians to be divided. I want us to be working together. Do you know why? Because I am a son of God, and I resemble Jesus, who is the ultimate peacemaker. All right, last one, last beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who are before you. Uh, to be a little quick on this point because I'm running out of time. It seems a little strange for Jesus to say congratulations if you get persecuted. Congratulations. Like, mm, seems a little weird. Blessings on your head if you get persecuted. You know, I'm reminded of another passage where Jesus says, though, woe to you if every man likes you. If everyone is cool with you, no one has any problems with you, everyone thinks you're just a great guy, Jesus says, whoa, be careful, warning. That is a bad sign for a Christian if you never run into any opposition. Because persecution will always be a sign of Christian discipleship. That if you are truly following along the line of Jesus' kingdom and living for him, you will eventually encounter persecution. You know, persecution looks a lot different. You know, I, I think of countries right now like Iraq and Afghanistan where they're literally fleeing for their lives. Persecution isn't just a matter of running for your lives. You know, I guess Jesus, you know, had to lay down his life and Jesus saying, you know, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. But maybe not the same way they persecuted Jesus. A lot of people can be persecuted at their jobs. They can um, suffer injustice. They can suffer mockery. Um, family can betray them. People think you're um, just an a uneducated, dumb person who doesn't get culture and you're not grounded in life. Looked at weird at the least. If we fully live these beatitudes, I promise you that you will encounter pushback. You will encounter persecution. Opposition is a normal mark of Christian discipleship. And I wish I had a little more time to unpack that, but just a, a few general thoughts on these eight Beatitudes. And some of you I know weren't here last week, and some of the people who were here last week aren't here today. But as we think of these eight Beatitudes, it's not just to say, okay, there's eight Beatitudes, and I need to do these eight things, and if I do these eight things, then I guess I'm a Christian. But if you'd imagine with me for one second, if before we even looked at these Beatitudes, and last week, or even maybe today, I hand you a piece of paper and a pen, and I said, I want you to write down eight things that you wish were different about yourself. 
Eight things that you can change, that whatever you wanted, go ahead. Just write them down. What would you put? I want more money. More time. Better grades. More friends. You know, I kind of want to be more nice. I want to be more talented. You know that question we talked about earlier about knowing more things? I want that. I want an extra car. I want to be taller. I want to be shorter. I want to be stronger. So ask that question because we all have our own beatitudes. We all have our things that we think we need to have in order to be happy. Or to be blessed. And if I asked you, like, why do you think if you had more time or more money or better grades or if you were taller or you had a better car, why do you think you, why do you want that? Well, because it would make me more happy and maybe people would like me more and because I would feel better about myself. And if we're not careful to not ever search our own hearts, we can quickly find out that our attitudes and our desires are the exact opposite of the desires that Jesus says are true of his disciples. And that's why the Beatitudes are always calling us to question our hearts and our desires, not the things that we do. You read your Bible, great, continue to do that. Jesus wants to know why. So two questions for you. Who are you going to be and what are you going to believe? Who are you going to, to be? Are you going to be a Christian, a disciple of Jesus, who is marked by these eight attitudes? Are you going to understand that this is what it means to resemble the family of God? So someone sees your life and they say, oh, you know what, I get it. I see the way you live your life. You know, you're a Christian. I understand now. Is that the way you're going to live your life? Is that who you're going to be? Because I tell you, with every beatitude that you do, with every time you understand this a little more, it's going to create a gap further and further and further away from the world. The more you understand that you're a poor in spirit, that you need to mourn about your sin, the more meek you become, the more you hunger and thirst for righteousness, the more you show mercy to others, the more that you are patient with others. When you encounter persecution, the more you live up to these attitudes, the more different you will be from the world. And people will notice. See, these, these beatitudes aren't just a list of things to do. But it, it, I don't know if you notice, but these are describing Jesus. The Beatitudes are about Jesus, about living for him, about knowing what it's like to live after Jesus. You know, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, poor in spirit. Jesus did not e count equality with God as something to be grasped. Blessed are the mournful. Jesus is known as the man of sorrows. Blessed are the meek. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, for I am weak and lowly. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus is the son of righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. He is the merciful high priest. Blessed are the pure in heart. He is the Holy One of Israel. Blessed are the peacemakers. His name is Prince of Peace. Blessed are the persecuted. And he is the suffering servant. You see, the Beatitudes are resembling what it means to be like Jesus. And there is grace to be had to live out these Beatitudes. And there is grace to be had when we don't live them perfectly. 
And God knows that we will never live these perfectly. But thanks be to God that he provided Jesus to atone for our sins. You guys will do well in life if you put effort into being more like Jesus by living out these attitudes in the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this opportunity of studying your word. And God, we just thank you so much that, Jesus, you're alive and you speak. And God, I pray that we would be able to find grace to live out these attitudes, these blessings. God, so many times we have complete different attitudes and blessings of our own that are so contrary to what your word says. But God, I pray for this truth, Lord, that we would be able to humbly confess our shortcomings and then humbly rely on your word in order to live a life that pleases you well. Jesus, thank you for dying for us. Thank you for for loving us when we were unlovable. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.